The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity, or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. Welcome to AUA's Advances in Genitourinary Cancer Immunotherapy Treatment Series webinar number three, Immuno-Oncology, a Focus on Kidney Cancer. Thank you to course director, Dr. Kostas Lawless, and faculty, Dr. Alexander Kudakov and Dr. Elizabeth Slimak for joining us tonight. The AUA would like to thank the following companies for providing independent educational grants in support of this webinar. AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Merck and Company, Inc. I will now turn the webinar over to course director, Dr. Kostas Lawless. Thank you, Kelsey. Uh, I'll go ahead and state the learning objectives for our webinar tonight. At the, at the conclusion of this activity, participants will be able to, number one, restate the role of the immune system in cancer prevention and elimination. Number two, discuss the effects of immune system checkpoint inhibitors on the immunosuppressive activity of tumor cells. And finally, number three, review clinical investigations into the efficacy of immune system checkpoint inhibitors in the treatment of GU cancers. Okay, so uh, with that being said, this is our third installment in our webinar series on immunotherapy for GU cancers. Uh, we really have a treat in store for you today. Both of our experts have joined us from down the road in Philadelphia at Fox Chase Cancer Center and represent thought leaders in their respective fields concerning the treatment of renal cell carcinoma. We're gonna start with Dr. Alex Kudakoff. Alex is the, a professor and chief in the Division of Urology and Urologic Oncology in the Department of Surgical Oncology at Fox Chase Cancer Center. He is a panel member on the AUA's Prostate Health Committee and part of the Kidney, Bladder, and Prostate Cancer Translational Research Disease Group at Fox Chase. He is a board-certified academic urologic surgical oncologist who treats urologic tumors using minimally invasive and traditional surgical techniques. Dr. Kudakoff has co-authored more than 175 original manuscripts in peer-reviewed journals. He has published chapters in leading urologic textbooks, including the definitive chapter on adrenal disorders in Campbell-Walsh urology, and he has held leadership positions in the American College of Surgeons, the AUA, and the SUO. He has significant interest in harnessing web and mobile technology to improve patient engagement and quality of care and is the co-founder of several ventures. Alex received his medical degree from Harvard Medical School's Harvard MIT Health Sciences and Technology Program. He completed a urologic residency at University of Pennsylvania and a two-year SUO fellowship at Fox Chase. We're so pleased he can join us today. With no further ado, Alex, take it away. Thank you, Costas, and thank you, uh, AUA for this opportunity. Um, what I'd like to do in the next uh, 15 to 20 minutes is really uh, walk us through how we got to where we are. And uh, I'll, walk, uh, I'll walk the audience through the past and the present, and I will pass it over to Dr. Blimack to really sort of um, introduce us to the latest in immune oncology. I'd like to touch upon some things like uh, cytoreductive nephrectomy, 
and adjuvant therapy that's very relevant to, uh, to the surgeons and to really um, try to shape the conversation of uh, what the controversies are in those spaces, um, which I think uh, challenge us in clinical practice really every day. Um, so let's see if I can turn the slides here. Perfect. These are my disclosures. Um, you know, we all know kidney cancer is relatively common, um, really comes into the top 10 for newly diagnosed cancers, both in males and, um, and females. But really, when you look at kidney cancer-specific mortality, um, uh, you really see it's one of the deadlier uh, GU cancers that we treat. Uh, about 23% of folks who get diagnosed with kidney cancer are destined to pass from kidney cancer. And as we know, it comes in different varieties. The, um, the bulk of the cancers are clear cell carcinomas, and as we'll speak to a little bit, we, we know much, uh, much more about what to do with the clear cells than we know what to do with the, with the other uh, histologic variants uh, of, uh, of kidney cancer, although every year we learn more and more. Um, but the challenge with kidney cancer, just like the challenge with a lot of cancers that we treat, uh, is the spectrum of disease. Because the patient, um, the patient, because the patient on the right exists, it a lot of the times paints our decision making for the patient on the left. And the small renal masses, the indolent cancers, and sometimes benign tumors, sometimes uh, you know what many of us argue get overtreated because we fear that they would progress to the metastatic to the advanced disease that can often be deadly. Um, and in fact, you know, kidney cancer is very challenging because systemic disease really abounds. There's 30% um, of our patients who come in with, um, with localized disease will progress to metastatic disease, and about a third of our patients uh, at presentation are metastatic already. And as we all know, starting in the early 80s to about 2005, we really were in an era where we had very limited options for patients with advanced kidney cancer. We really had um, cytokines like interferon alpha and IL-2, and then high-dose IL-2 came in in the early 90s, and really up until the mid-2000s, this is all uh, we had um, to treat our advanced kidney cancer patients. And this <clears throat> pulled up these guidelines for M1 disease from around 2000, and, you know, you can see, you can build complexity even out of simplicity. This, you had really two tools, and you only had a sort of um, old-school immunotherapy uh, with uh, interferon alpha, and uh, th this was, this was um, what, the, uh, what the guidelines looked like then. You know, we can only imagine what the guidelines look like now with all the options that we have available although we do, we, our, our key opinion leaders do try to keep it simple. Um, so in, in this era, when we only had um, systemic therapy in the form of immunotherapy, and largely interferon alpha, as we all know, there were two trials that were done, one in Europe and one in the U.S., where patients were randomized to uh, receive cytoreductin nephrectomy versus uh, immuno systemic immunotherapy um, versus receiving immunotherapy alone. 
and there was a survival benefit. And really, in the combined analysis, the survival benefit, the median survival went from uh, just under eight months to just over 13 months, so about a six-month advantage to doing a cytoreductive nephrectomy. And this, uh, this what really drove our management for the last uh, two decades is really these two studies. Um, and we took a lot of people for surgery um, and offered them uh, a metastatectomy, a cytoreductive nephrectomy, when they came to see us because really the, there was not a great systemic option. And then came uh, the advent of target therapy. And this, this really, in a rapid succession, in the mid-2000s, this is uh, when a lot of us were training, um, came serafinib followed by sunitinib, uh, followed by mTOR inhibitors, uh, bev, uh, uh, bevinafuron was in there, and really the space in the landscape markedly changed. And with it, you know, and really these all these agents um, targeted this communication between the endothelial cells and the cancer cells and really disrupted that communications in the VEGF pathway where the, these tumors could not really, um, <clears throat> would, the, the communication to the endothelial cells would be disrupted and this angiogenesis would be prevented, thus um, seizing or uh, at least slowing the cancer growth. And here, here's where the, um, the TKIs were, and um, this is BEV, and here's the, uh, the mTOR inhibitors in the pathway. Um, and all these agents uh, at, that, at, at that point, and again, in, the, in, the, in a succession of, of papers, some, some of which uh, were led by um, folks at our institution, um, were randomized against interferon alpha and shown to be far superior. And for us surgeons came the question is, should we still offer cytoreductive nephrectomy when now we have um, better systemic therapy options? And this was really the big question for the last 10, 15 years. And what I will sort of tell you is my perspective and really how, you know, Dr. Plimak and I and a lot of our colleagues really viewed these data at Fox Chase and how we shaped management decisions and how these management decisions are shaped now. And I'll just kind of walk you through sort of our, our, our take on these data. So this is an early paper that I, uh, I did actually when I was still a fellow. Um, I looked at sort of Fox Chase cytoreductive nephrectomies and the question was this. In the, in, the, um, uh, in the randomized data for interferon alpha versus interferon alpha plus cytoreductive nephrectomy, all, basically all of the patients received systemic therapy, okay? And so the question was, in the current era, how many patients actually receive systemic therapy if they undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy? And the answer was that about 30% don't actually receive systemic therapy, and it's for various reasons. Some of them have perioperative, you know, sort of very suboptimal perioperative outcomes, and some of them have very rapid progression, um, while some don't receive systemic therapy for a very different reasons. They don't receive systemic therapy because um, the, the multidisciplinary team felt that at this point it wasn't necessary. The, the metastatic burden was low enough that the patient can be watched. And um, this, you know, this, uh, 
these data um, painted a lot of our decision making. Basically, in this in this era up until now, the we really try to avoid cytoreductive nephrectomy in a patient in whom we thought um, the surgery was too risky or we thought that they were likely to be a rapid progressor where, you know, if they had liver metastasis, if they had brain metastasis, or if they had a very large volume of disease that we were leaving behind following surgery, that if they would, if they uh, received a cytoreductive nephrectomy but they were at risk for rapid progression, we elected to undergo um, a litmus test of systemic therapy before they went on to cytoreductive nephrectomy. And a lot of centers did that as well. And, and looking at retrospective data, this is from Tony Chereri's group at, um, uh, in Boston um, at the Dana-Farber, you know, we did a good job. Basically, if you retrospectively look at patients who undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy uh, versus those who don't undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy, we chose wisely. The cytoreductive nephrectomy group <clears throat> did a lot better. Um, now, the question still remained, if you try to eliminate the selection bias, in the, which absolutely existed, we really picked the much more robust patients, the much healthier patients, the patients with a lesser uh, tumor burden for cytoreductive nephrectomy, if you really eliminated that, um, uh, that selection bias, which you really cannot do, no matter how, what you know, fancy or sophisticated statistical manipulation you do in these kind of studies, you can never eliminate this bias. Um, you can only eliminate by randomizing patients prospectively. If you eliminated this bias, are you going to get the same result? And this is the Carmina study that was published in the New England Journal in August that showed that when you took some, when you, when you randomized patients, um, you actually, in, in the current era w with um, targeted therapy, this is randomized uh, patients to sunitinib and nephrectomy versus sunitinib alone, you actually did not see the survival advantage that you saw in the early immunotherapy studies. Now, why is that? This is very controversial because there are many folks who really believe that these patients who in many centers would not have been offered cytoreductive nephrectomy in the current era anyway were really randomized here. So you, you really had very high-risk patients being randomized, and these were the rapid progressors. These are the patients that a lot of us walked away from the cytoreductive nephrectomy in the last decade anyway. These patients were randomized, and a lot of us feel that this study really shows us what we already know. But in this study, it really underscored that if you randomize all comers to cytoreductive nephrectomy, you um, are largely doing harm. Um, you're, you're really not benefiting the patient. And this perspective comparison really sort of makes us think. And, um, you know, here are my thoughts on cytoreductive nephrectomy in the current era, and this is how I think about it. And, you know, what, I, what I'll show you is really dovetails with the recent, with the recent EAU uh, guidelines on the topic. The, you know, cytoreductive nephrectomy improves survival even in, you know, in the, in the initial studies only, only if you can deliver the systemic therapy agent, okay? Uh, not all patients who undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy receive systemic therapy. So you really need to, at all costs, avoid um, locking the patient out of systemic therapy. Now, the other nuance in the next slide that I'll show you is that not all patients 
who undergo sedative reductive nephrectomy require systemic therapy. Some of these patients will not need systemic therapy because they're, they have such oligometastatic disease. And what the Carmina and also the CERTIME data, uh, another, another trial that was done, indicate that some patients may be harmed for cytoreductive nephrectomy. So I think we really need to thread the cytoreductive needle, as I'll show you in a second, very carefully in 2018. Um, Alex, are, are, sorry to interrupt. Are you using any of the uh, prognostic nomograms when you decide who you're going to take for cytoreductive nephrectomy? Uh, I do. I do use sometimes the um, the CULP nomogram from MD Anderson. I think that's a useful tool. It really integrates a lot of um, um, a, a lot of these perioperative factors, like um, like preoperative albumin. And we, we have a paper uh, from our uh, from our center uh, showing that if the patient has uh, a reduction in their in their albumin, I mean this is a this is a patient who absolutely. Uh, is at very high risk for rapid progression for healing from surgery um, uh, poorly, and this is a patient that who, who needs who needs to go to our medical oncology colleagues and receive uh, systemic therapy. But I mean, Casas, I think it's um, it's uh, what I'm going to show you in the next few slides. I think it's very clear cut these days who really should go undergo cytoreductive reductive therapy, or at least consider it, and who shouldn't. I mean, these are. Um, the patients who, whom we can help, I, I, you know, they're they're clinically um, uh, very. Um, they come in, and it's very clear cut who those patients are. And I'll, I'll sort of speak to that in just one second. But I just wanted to highlight this uh, the study by Betsy Plimack uh, and Brian Reney at Cleveland, uh, Cleveland Clinic. And this, you know, these are patients uh, who we take care of every day here. These are patients basically with oligometastatic disease. Who were monitored? This was a phase two trial uh, of patients uh, um, who were monitored for their metastatic disease without receiving systemic therapy. And as you can see, their their patients were median length of active surveillance in this metastatic setting, setting was over a year, and that's a huge deliverable uh, to these patients to not receive systemic therapy and not to have the side effects of systemic therapy. So we need to. We need to keep this experience in mind when actually we're making decisions about cytoreductive nephrectomy, and um, and and really again to stress that first when we choose our patients for for surgery we, we really should do no harm. So this is how I think about it. If you plan to observe, it's with one of those patients with oligometastatic disease that have um, that have an excellent performance status that you know uh, don't have any high risk features that have um, uh, that have uh, you know a, a normal uh, albumin who really walk off the streets you would not know that they had metastatic disease and who have low volume metastases especially in the lungs and you know that if you underwent cytoreductive you you took them through a cytoreductive nephrectomy you would watch them afterwards anyway I think that's the perfect candidate for cytoreductive nephrectomy. Um, if you aren't sure regarding observation, if you think you, they need a little bit of time to see how rapidly their disease progresses, or you need to start them on systemic therapy right away, I don't think in 2018, given the data that we have, we should offer them cytoreductive nephrectomy. These are patients who should go to medical oncology, who should receive systemic therapy, and they should be given this litmus test and this opportunity to see these agents that are incredibly active now. Um, and then, you know, the book is not yet written. How often and when can we circle back to cytoreductive nephrectomy and whether that would be helpful? And we certainly at our center do. If they have a nice, re a nice response to systemic therapy and we feel that 
Uh, it's, you know, the risks are small to uh, take him back for an nephrectomy. We do that in select cases. And I, I think that, that, again, that book hasn't been written yet, but uh, I think when we choose patients for cytoreductive nephrectomy in 2018, it's very, very important that we uh, don't lock our patients out of the systemic therapy options that are just very, very active. Um, and this, you know, this sort of way of thinking about it um, is, um, is echoed by the guidelines from uh, EAU that were put out really on the heels of the Carmina data. Uh, and really, you can read them here, but uh, it, 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 um, it largely um, basically summarized in this, um, uh, in my takeaway from them, that if you're going to lock a patient out, um, if they need systemic therapy soon, don't do cytoreductive nephrectomy. Get them to systemic therapy and then circle back to cytoreductive nephrectomy later. Um, so now I want to speak a little bit to adjuvant therapy. Uh, again, a challenge. Uh, when we operate on our patients with high-risk disease, uh, you know, we, we want to offer them uh, all options that are available. And so what, what are the data and where are, where are we? And there's been a lot of changes in this landscape as well. So. You know, there were, in, in, the, in the early 2000s, you know, just about every immunotherapy agent was randomized, uh, was, um, was randomized against observation in these uh, stage 3, stage 4, N0, or N positive patients uh, who had their high-risk localized disease fully resected. And there was absolutely no benefit um, at, two, at, you know, uh, at two or two, five years of follow-up. Then came the um, targeted therapy era, and a big trial uh, with uh, Rabuzo, uh, Fox Chase being the urology PI, which was the Assure Me trial that basically uh, randomized uh, serafinib, sunitinib, or combination versus, uh, versus placebo, um, demonstrated no uh, survival benefit to adjuvant therapy. And the PROTECT trial, which randomized uh, pazopinib to uh, placebo, also was negative. Recently, ATLAS, which is axintinib, uh, was also negative. And this extract trial, which Pfizer did with uh, sunitinib in a, in a little bit of a different group of patients, showed that there was a disease-free survival benefit. However, uh, there was... Um, there was no, uh, no overall survival benefit has yet, has yet been reported. And here's the data from the F-Track. Basically, there is, a, um, there is a survival benefit to patients who received about a year of sunitinib. Um, and however, in the absence of overall survival benefit, it is hard to, at least for me, to really advocate for use of sunitinib in every patient unless they're appropriately counseled about the deliverables. And really the deliverables are you're going to be on a drug uh, for, an, for a certain amount of time to have your scans be clean for basically that much longer um, without us actually knowing that there is a survival benefit to you. And I, I think that's a conversation to be had with some patients. Um, some of them are receptive to this. Some of them really are not interested. But, uh, you know, this is now approved. Uh, FDA approved in the uh, adjuvant space and, uh, you know, a, a, at least needs to be contextualized to patients that that data is out there. Now, the big question that always remains in our minds is what was the difference between S-TRAC and Assure? Uh, and, you know, they were different. Basically, S-TRAC was really enriched in these clear cell patients. There were um, much higher risk patients. 
and um, and you know th there was this difference where we we didn't see a difference in Assure. The Assure investigators went back and they did a subset analysis of patients in the same risk group as was uh, as were in Estrac, and actually in that sub-analysis did not uh, subset analysis did not see a survival benefit to you know when you um, when you looked at sunitinib, serafinib versus placebo. So, you know, I think that these, these data need to be understood by us when we counsel our patients. However, you know, I think everybody has different enthusiasm about these data about offering to patients. Now, um, and, and especially at centers like ours where we have clinical trials that are open for, um, for immunotherapy agents, and I'll just speak to these two main trials that are open out there briefly, and then I'll, I'll pass on uh, the baton to Dr. Plimak. Uh, but the trials that are open out, <coughs> out there right now are basically uh, this EMOTION trial, which is a randomization of uh, atezolizumab to uh, placebo, um, and this PROSPER trial, which is nivolumab uh, randomized a, randomized in a, in a very interesting way. This is this trial actually requires a biopsy beforehand, before surgery, and then they re, uh, then patients received neoadjuvant nivolumab. There is some uh, basic science data to show that uh, you know <clears throat> that um, immunologists believe this agent will work best when the tumor is in situ and then resection followed by adjuvant uh, nivolumab versus resection and observation. So that one is a little bit of a trickier trial because you gotta, you got to really biopsy patients beforehand, um, and they, you know, this has to be done at the center where the trial is open, whereas uh, the EMOTION trial, which we chose to open and actually you know, our, our, some, of, uh, some of our colleagues lead uh, here, is uh, a little bit easier to enroll patients because even if the nephrectomy is done, uh, at another center, they can be sent in here for a uh, for adjuvant therapy, um, and these trials are enrolling. So, at least in my practice, the really the discussion for adjuvant therapy is is largely whether to enroll into a trial or just observation. Um, at this point, I'll pass the baton on to uh, Dr. Plimak, um, with whom I have the absolute privilege to work almost every day. Um, and uh, I think you will, you'll, you know, this is one of the most knowledgeable folks uh, in the country on immunotherapy. Um, so, Betsy, please. Uh, Betsy, let me go ahead and introduce you before you get started. Alex, thanks a lot. That was wonderful. Um, uh, again, Betsy is coming from the same institution, which is a veritable powerhouse in the treatment of renal cell carcinoma. Uh, Dr. Plimick is an associate professor of medical oncology and the Chief of the Division of GU Medical Oncology and Director of GU Clinical Research at Fox Chase Cancer Center. She is an expert on the treatment of GU malignancies with a focus on bladder and kidney cancers. Her research effort is directed toward the discovery of novel therapeutic approaches and predictive biomarkers for patients with bladder and kidney cancers. Betsy has extensive clinical trial experience with immunotherapies and novel combination therapies and she serves on the NCCN Guidelines Panel for Bladder, Kidney, and Prostate Cancer, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network Management and Think Tank Steering Committees, and on the AJCC Urinary Tract Expert Panel. Dr. Plemick received her undergraduate degree from Yale and completed her MD degree and residency in internal medicine at NYU School of Medicine. She finished a fellowship 
in, in medical oncology at the MD Anderson Cancer Center and a master's in patient-based biologic research from the University of Texas Graduate School of Biomedical Science. Uh, we, again, we are thrilled to have her today. Uh, we'd like to thank her for joining us as well. Uh, with no further ado, Betsy, go ahead and take it away. Thank you. Next time I'll send you a shorter bio <laughs> to say someone. Um, can everyone hear me, hopefully? Good. So uh, thank you, Alex, for that great introduction. Again, I'm happy to work with you guys and all of you urologists uh, through the AUA. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and thank you for curing so many patients with kidney cancer who don't even get to meet me. Um, so what I'll go through today is basically um, what we do when patients are metastatic. Here are my disclosures relative to renal cell carcinoma. Okay, so we'll start talking about first-line immunotherapy and we will jump right into it. So here is the data that landed immunotherapy back in the front line. I guess we could argue high dose L2, which Alex went over, was the initial immune therapy. Um, but now, uh, and this was presented exactly a year ago, almost this week, at ESMO, um, showing nivolumab and ipilimumab. So nivolumab is a PD-L1, I'm sorry, PD-1 inhibitor. Ipilimumab is a CTLA-4 inhibitor. Both are immune checkpoints that block the negative interaction between the immune cell and the tumor cell. And when these two drugs are combined, they're very powerful in poor-risk renal cell carcinoma. So this randomized clinical trial with hundreds of patients, you can see here almost 1,000 patients. Let me get the arrow. You can see here almost 1,000 patients um, showed a uh, improvement in overall survival, median not reached for Nevo and Ipi, and for sunitinib 26 months. So this is now a standard of care for us for patients with poor risk, and I'll go through risk in a minute. So here uh, is another co-primary endpoint, which was overall response rate and duration of response. So here you can see that the overall response rate uh, is higher, 42% for Nevo and Ipi versus 27% for sunitinib, again, in intermediate and poor risk renal cell. Sorry, I'm working with a pointer here, okay. Um, and that the duration of the response, so these are patients who do respond lasts longer here with Ipi and Nevo than with sunitinib. However, for favorable risk patients, the response rates are flipped. And this is what was interesting and somewhat unanticipated. So here you see with favorable risk renal cell, I don't know if you can see this here, sunitinib, the response rate is 52% versus only 29 for Nevo and Ipi. Um, and the progression-free survival also longer with sunitinib than Nevo and Ipi. So risk really matters. Um, here we have the overall response rate, progression-free survival, and overall survival in the intent-to-treat population. This is all patients entered. And you can see when you combine intermediate all risk groups, still there's a benefit to Nevo and Ipi. Here the curves are a little bit closer, but nonetheless a benefit to the combination. Probably this is because only about 20% of patients in the study were good risk. So those 20% do better with sunitinib but the majority did better with Nevo and Ipi. So what is IMDC risk? So this was developed in the era of TKIs, a set of clinical predictors that predict for response in, in the case of t here, TKIs. So it really shouldn't surprise us that it performs so well with the sunitinib arm. There are six factors, and we quiz our fellows all the time on these six. 
Again, these only apply to patients with metastatic disease, but we have time from initial diagnosis to treatment. That's basically includes patients who present metastatic and require treatment. Patients who don't meet that criteria for poor risk are those who you all have taken out their kidney maybe three to five years ago and they're recurring now. Those are patients who don't get a point for this. Performance status, of course, and then four blood tests. Hemoglobin if it's low, calcium if it's high, platelets if they're high, and neutrophils if they're high. What's nice about this is you can do it with a chemistry panel and a CBC and a visit to the clinic. You can assess risk. You can see here 75 to 80% of patients in the front line are actually poor intermediate risk. So Ipianevo is going to be applicable to most of our patients. There's also data, though, with monotherapy immunotherapy. So pembrolizumab, which is not approved for kidney cancer, at least not yet, uh, is a PD PD-1 inhibitor, again, blocks the interaction of the immune cell with the tumor cell. And to our surprise, this by itself had a pretty nice response rate in all risk groups, 38%. Still here, poor and intermediate risk did a little bit better than favorable risk, but we were really happy to see these results. And I have a summary slide that'll put these all in context in a minute. Here, the overall survival, although not very mature, you can see people had made it just to, um, nine months of follow-up here and then it gets kind of censored. But basically, most patients are alive at a year with single-agent monotherapy, uh, which is kind of neat to see. So we'll see where this ends up in the paradigm. So moving on, and this is very apropos of recent news, we'll talk about first-line combination therapy with VEGF-targeted therapy and immunotherapy together. So the very first phase three data presented looking at this combination was Emotion 151. It's a tezolizumab, which is a pdl one inhibitor, and bevacizumab, which is an intravenous VEGF inhibitor, compared to sunitinib. Again, sunitinib you'll see is the common control arm in all these studies. And so the, one of the um, primary endpoints of this was uh, progression-free survival, and this was met with a Tezo and Bev 11.2% versus only 7.7% with sunitinib. Uh, the second primary endpoint in this study, or I should say the co-primary endpoint here, uh, is intend to treat overall survival, and that has not yet matured and not been reached. Um, both co-primary endpoints, not endpoint number two, but co-primary endpoints have to be met in order for the study to be considered positive, so we'll, we are still waiting for the survival data to mature here. So here you can see this study, one of the endpoints was powered to the pdl one positive population, PFS 11.2% versus 7.7%. This difference is slightly more pronounced than the intent to treat population. And so one might say that PDL1 is somewhat of a biomarker for this combination. However, this past week, uh, that was pretty much debunked with new data that I'll speak to in a minute. So here's another combination, and we participated in this study here. And this is really the most amazing waterfall plot I think I've ever seen in GU cancers. Uh, these are patients treated with exitinib and pembrolizumab. This was a phase one study, and never before have we really seen, you know, only two of 52 patients had any tumor growth at all with this combination. So, of course, this was launched into phase three, and recent breaking news that um, is not included in this slide deck is that the phase three study of this combination met its endpoints for progression-free survival and overall survival in the entire study population at its very first interim analysis. 
So nobody's seen those data yet, but we're uh, anticipating that it'll be a really marked benefit and that this combination has a future in kidney cancer. Here's the overall survival for, again, that phase one study. And you can see the follow-up here, also almost 20 months, most people are alive, right? We're, we're nowhere near the median here. Here would be the median. <laughs> and we're not even there going out past 20 months. So date, time will tell in terms of survival, but we're pretty excited about this combination. Here's another similar combination. This is, again, the phase one study of exitinib plus avelumab. Avelumab is a PDL one inhibitor. Um, here, the, in the phase one study, again, you see the majority of patients had tumor shrinkage. So again, this is a combination that we're really excited about. This study was launched into phase three, and the results were just presented last week at ESMO, which showed a benefit in terms of progression-free survival, 12.5 months versus 8.4 months with sunitinib, the comparator arm, and an overall response rate of 51% in this combination versus 26% with sunitinib alone. So those are pretty exciting results. Um, overall survival data is not mature either for this phase one or for the phase three that was presented at ESMO. So I think, especially with a combination therapy, we really want to know that there's a benefit in survival. Otherwise, we might as well just give the, the drugs in sequence, not in combination up front. Um, so this, this slide didn't transfer very well, unfortunately. Um, and the, the labels here, I'm so sorry, really did not come through at all. Um, but let me, um, let me pull up my other version of this. So here you have axitinib plus avelumab and axitinib plus pembrolizumab. So you can see these are from the phase one studies. These are the best response rates we've seen. Here in red are the FDA-approved options, ipilimumab and nivolumab and pazopinib alone. These obviously have response rates in the 30% range. But single-agent pembrolizumab here at 38% um, has a pretty decent response rate on its own. This is, again, not approved for kidney cancer, so we don't use it as a single agent. Um, but we all thought this was a really interesting finding, and we kind of await uh, further mature survival results. Um, so what are we looking at in terms of renal cell carcinoma treatment? So the question, I think, is going to be uh, combination versus single agent, and then what are we combining? So here we see in terms of toxicity and tolerability, ironically, the single agent standard of care is actually one of the more toxic regimens. And as we go to single agent immunotherapy, toxicity becomes more, uh, less pronounced. The drug, the combination, or the drug becomes more tolerable. So I think in the future, we're really going to be weighing efficacy, especially overall survival, uh, and also tolerability. So where do we stand? So here are my recommendations standing here today in October. I think these will probably change uh, in the next three months or so when the combination therapy data comes out and we may see approvals or guideline recommendations. But basically, for favorable risk, checkpoint inhibitors are still recommended, again, because the response rate in PFS is so much longer. Alex just showed you about active surveillance. This is definitely an option for patients with very slow-growing cancers where we can not only manage them with surgery and metastasectomy, but also what I tell my patients is, let's wait. We're going to know more about these drugs. Things are changing quickly. I, I bet I'm going to have better treatment options available for you a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. So for patients who can afford that, this is what we choose. For poor and intermediate risk uh, renal cell carcinoma, we prefer ipilimumab and nivolumab as of today. Again, that might change as the combinations become approved and we see more data 
An alternate is always still a VEGF TKI, including pazopinib and cabozantinib. Uh, and for those who are really ill, best supportive care. So uh, here are the things I think I talked about. We're going to be looking for favorable risk-benefit, potential improved outcomes with the VEGF TKI combinations, value assessment. So again, combination therapy is always going to be more expensive than single agent. And so I think the payers, especially in Europe, are going to be looking at that closely. So Betsy, before you jump into your yeah. next slide, we do have a question from the audience. I think this is going back to one of your prior slides. Uh, asking how they define PD-1 positive patients? Yeah, so that is a great question. And for every study that you see, it will be a different answer. So for the study I showed you, atezolizumab and bevacizumab, they use a staining procedure where they stain only immune cells. Uh, for instance, for pembrolizumab, they use a separate uh, antibody, and then they stain for tumor cells and immune cells and set a different threshold. So uh, the short answer is it's all immunohistochemistry, um, but the methodology and the antibody are different, and the results tumor to tumor are different. So we are far from having a standardized uh, answer to that question. Okay, so here we're moving to immunotherapy in the second line and beyond. So systemic therapy options for metastatic renal cell in 2018. Look at the list, it's long. I mean, I think 10 years ago, we never thought we'd be here necessarily so quickly, um, but at the same time, deciding among these is a challenge for, for the medical oncology community. So I'll start with a case that I think illustrates um, all the different kind of treatment options and, and choices that we have. So this is a man I met when he was 59. He had a 3.5 centimeter renal mass and a horseshoe kidney. Uh, it was resected, and he enrolled in one of the adjuvant studies, pazopinib versus placebo. He completed his treatment, and at the very first scan after he had been off therapy, uh, metastases were sort of uncovered, or I guess they had evolved in the time he was off. He had a mediastinal lymph node and a liver metastasis. Turns out he had been on pazopinib, and so we treated him with axitinib uh, on a clinical trial. Well, he tolerated it well. He progressed really right through his second uh, TKI. And then he was enrolled in the randomized phase three trial of nivolumab versus everolimus for patients who had had prior treatment. He was randomized to nivolumab. So let's talk about the data that came out of the trial he enrolled in. This is a randomized trial of nivolumab versus everolimus. You can see here that the overall survival is improved with nivolumab over everolimus, and therefore this is a standard of care in this space. Response rate as well, better, 25% versus 5%. And in terms of the quality of the responses, we can see that many of them were still ongoing. Those black arrows indicate patients who are still responding to treatment. Uh, and quality of life was improved really at all points here with nivolumab. Um, unfortunately, this slide doesn't show. Uh, but what I'm trying to show you here is that PDL1 positivity did not make a difference. Here, PDL1 positive patients defined here as greater than 1% staining. Um, still, nivolumab did better here compared to PDL1 negative patients. Um, again, same results, uh, just doesn't matter based on the biomarker, nivolumab still wins. Okay, so here's a graph of the patient's tumor burden that I just showed you. So he started on the volumab here, and at the very first scan, his tumor grew. According to the study, we could reset the baseline and continue to treat him, and after he progressed, his tumor started to shrink. 
He then slowly over time grew, shrank, grew, and once he exceeded really his sort of maximum, or I guess re-zeroing re of his nadir, we had to take him off study. He felt great, he had adrenal insufficiency, but we replaced him. Um, and this is really a case of pseudo-progression, right, where there's initial, initial growth followed by shrinkage. And this is why it's important in some patients to keep them on the drug even if they initially progress. So at 3.5 years, this is where his progression was. It was all in the liver, and uh, the lymph node had resolved. So we made the um, sort of dramatic decision to resect this chunk of his liver. Uh, and now he's six years from his diagnosis, 2.5 years from completing his nivolumab. The liver lesion was resected, and he's had no recurrence. Uh, so this is, these are sort of some dramatic responses, but not unheard of, that we see with immunotherapy that I think we did not see back in the era of hydrothiol 2 The uh, pseudoprogression that you mentioned, is that unique to the immunotherapies? So it is. I would not recommend treating a patient with a VEGF-TKID on their initial progression. Um, that's not been shown to be the case. With the TKIs, sometimes we can see initial growth and then shrinkage. The mechanism of that is not that well-defined. Some think it's immune infiltrate kind of puffing up the tumor before it then shrinks. Um, but I will say pseudoprogression is really only seen in patients who feel great, they're asymptomatic, and you're just seeing their scans change. Patients who feel poorly, who have symptoms, that's real progression, and they need to be switched. So here are some possible sequences. And again, you know, it's kind of we're outside the data here because no one's tested every single one of these agents after every prior sequence. But this is, this is sort of typical of patients I see in practice. Good risk patients can be on observation, and then usually they get a good long run with VEGF therapy. Then we can usually use immunotherapy later. Poor risk patients are very aggressive. You can start with cabozantinib because we can usually get a response faster, followed by ipi and nevo. Intermediate to poor risk patients, for the most part, we try to start with ipi and nevo and then move to the VEGF TKIs. Patients who have been on TKI for a long time um, can get another TKI or ipi and nevo together. So again, ipi and nevo is approved post-TKI based on phase one data. Um, another option for patients who started with TKI is second-line nivolumab. What we're doing now is patients who have a good response to nivolumab but then kind of lose their response Sometimes we're adding ipilimumab. We have a clinical trial looking at that uh, open here at Fox Chase run by Mike Atkins. Uh, so I know we're kind of short on time in terms of questions, but that is systemic therapy as of today in a nutshell. Uh, I guarantee you when we talk after GUAFCO, for instance, um, all of these paradigms may shift, but I think that's part of why it's really exciting to be in medical oncology treating kidney cancer nowadays. Thanks. Awesome. Well, thank you, Betsy. Um, uh, and I invite all of you to join us uh, for uh, our webinar number four, Immuno-Oncology, a focus on prostate cancer. This will be our fourth installation in a series of four webinars. It is on Wednesday, November 14th from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, to access a variety of free resources on advancements in GU IO treatment by visiting auanet.org backslash GU, the resources include uh, the Immuno-Oncology, a new class of drug webcast and podcast, a, a focus on bladder cancer webcast, and finally, Breaking Down Barriers podcast uh, dealing with biomarkers. Uh, and thank everybody for your time. 
and uh, have a wonderful evening.